Welcome back, everybody. <laughs> it's good to be back at Bible study, isn't it? So Jesus and Moses are playing golf. And they're on the 10th hole. And Moses hits the ball, and it heads straight for a pond. Just before the ball hits the water, the pond parts, and the ball rolls up onto the green. <laughs> Jesus winds up and hits one about to the same spot. Jesus' ball hits the water, skips across. All of a sudden, lightning flashes, and a ball drops from the sky. A fish swallows it. A bird picks up the fish and drops the ball onto a turtle that then walks over to the hole and drops it in. <laughs> Moses turns to Jesus and says, I hate it when your dad plays. <laughs> that did not happen. <laughs> but we will spend the rest of the time this morning talking about what did happen with Moses in the first 18 chapters of Exodus. As we review what we did last semester, um, all of us have slept since we did Bible study last semester, so it's time for a little review. And so what I would like to do is share some lessons from Exodus as we review these 18 chapters. Life lessons for us, as well as what is the scripture teaching us? Got a bunch of them, um, because Exodus is one of the richest books in the whole Bible. First of all, when God's commands are the furthest from what makes sense to you, don't freak out. Let's talk for a little bit about the faith of Moses' mom and dad. They commend, they're commended in the hall of faith of Hebrews 11. We see that they were not afraid of Pharaoh's law to kill the baby boys, and instead they trusted Yahweh. So what did they do with their baby? Where did they put him? In the last spot that made common sense, right at the river's edge, the place where they were drowning the baby boys, that's where they felt God nudged them to take their little boy. We would carry our little one as far from the river as possible, but they responded to the Spirit's leading, and they put him in a basket in the water, and God took care of him really, really well. Secondly, there are no accidents. It was neither by chance nor accident that Pharaoh's daughter went down to the river that day to bathe. There are no accidents with God. There are no chance happenings with God because we live in a world that is presided over by the living, sovereign God who's in charge of everything. Not controlling that we don't have a choice. That's not at all. But he can make everything work together for good for those who are um, called according to his purpose. God is behind the scenes ordering everything for his glory. Even our smallest actions are controlled by him. <laughs> We see it in the story of Pharaoh's daughter. I saw it a couple weeks ago um, on a cruise. Ray and I went down to Galveston, which as far as I'm concerned, the only reason you go to Galveston is to get on a cruise ship. And um, so in Cozumel, Ray and I got off the ship and we're on the pier um, and we're heading out for a day at the beach. And here come a couple of people who've already been shopping 
and they're getting back on the ship. And suddenly I realized that this woman is wearing a green watermark women's Bible study t-shirt. And I said, ah, you're from Watermark. You've got a Bible study t-shirt on. Who are you? I'm Sue Bolin. She goes, you're Sue Bolin? I was wearing a Join the Journey t-shirt. <laughs> she goes, I read your, your comments on the journey. Turns out it was Kelly Nix. She and her husband helped start Watermark Fort Worth. Todd had just mentioned her and Scott like two weeks before because Scott went to be with the Lord on December 16th. And they already had these cruise tickets bought. So they said, well, let's just go. If, if you're going to do that, when you're in shock is a really good time to go. God made sure that out of almost 4,000 people on that ship, that he arranged for us to meet when we both had time to visit and connect and find out how we could talk later. I just thought, Lord, you're just showing off. I just love that no accident thing you do. Another lesson is that God's in all the details. It was God who put it into the heart of the Egyptian princess to go to the river to bathe. It was God who sent her to that particular spot where the basket was nestled in among the reeds. It was God who caused her to be moved with compassion rather than some indignation at the defiance of her father's authority or something like that. When she beholds this weeping child, she responded with compassion that was all of God. It was God who had Miriam, Moses' sister, suggests that she just go get a Hebrew woman to wet nurse the child. And of course, that would be the baby's own mom. It was God who caused this princess to yield submissively to the suggestion of this little girl. And it was God who made the princess willing for his own mother to care for the little child. And she paid her to nurse her child for the first few years of his life. God was behind all those details. Don't think you can mess with the sovereign God. In Exodus 2.10, we read that the child grew and the, uh, Moses' uh, mom brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. And she named him Moses and said, because I drew him out of the water because that's what Moses means, drawn out. Pharaoh said he wanted to deal wisely with the Israelites to keep them from leaving Egypt. And yet, in the end, God compels him to give board and lodging and education to the very man who would accomplish the very thing that Pharaoh was trying to prevent, having the Israelites leave Egypt. God just laughed, I think. Pharaoh's wisdom was turned to foolishness, and Satan's devices were defeated because you don't mess with the sovereign God of the universe. God's timing is all figured out in advance by math that we don't understand. See, Moses killed an Egyptian when he thought it was in secret, but he got busted. He was afraid Pharaoh would take vengeance on him, so he fled to Midian. But God's time for delivering, each, uh, delivering Israel had not yet arrived. And Moses' way of achieving deliverance was not God's way. 
When Moses killed the Egyptian, that was 100% Moses and 0% God. That never works. So God made sure that Moses got busted, and he shut the door to Moses' desire to see his brothers delivered from slavery in his own way. And when God shuts a door for us to do something we want, and even if we feel called to do it, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's some fault in us. It may be because the time is not yet ripe. And it certainly was not ripe for Moses at that time. God had a lot of preparation to do, 40 years worth of preparation to do in Moses. So he goes to Midian. He's in the wilderness, he's in the desert, and then the Lord appears to him in the burning bush. And the burning bush was a picture of Jesus because it, it was, uh, the burning bush was engulfed in the flames, but it was not consumed. Jesus, fast forward several, you know, many, many, many hundreds of years, Jesus would be engulfed in the flames of God's judgment without being consumed. Jesus left heaven to become a human being. He took on himself all the sins of the world while he hung on the cross. For three hours, the world experienced profound darkness while the sins of the whole world were placed on Jesus. And just like that burning bush burned but wasn't consumed, Jesus burned up the sins of the world without being consumed. He suffered the fierce flames of God's holy wrath against sin, but he was not consumed. When he got to the end of that three-hour period where he was carrying those our sins on him and paying for them with incredible, un, unimaginable pain, then it was over, and he said, it is finished. It is paid in full, and he, went, he was ready to, to meet his father again. It's deeply significant that the Hebrew word sene means thorny bush. The burning bush was a thorn bush because thorns are a lasting reminder of the curse. In Genesis 3.18, God says to Adam, um, the, the earth is not going to just want to produce food for you anymore, Adam. It's going to produce thorns and thistles, and you're going to have to fight against it your whole life. But in the place of the curse comes our blessed substitute, Jesus. And he spent three days in the tomb and then came back to life because death could not hold him, just as the flames could not consume him. When we see the burning bush, that is one of the many, many signposts that point forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to see more and more evidences that that. Exodus is pointing to Jesus as we go forward into the semester. When God calls us to do something, all we need to remember is that he is with us. In Exodus 3.12, he said, God says, certainly I will be with you to Moses, and this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. This was bound to be comforting to Moses because God didn't ask Moses to go forward alone. He said, I'm going to be with you, Moses. Don't sweat any of the details. I will be with you. And that is still God's promise to us today. 
If God asks us to do anything, he says, I will be with you. Matthew 28, 20, one of the last things Jesus said before leaving earth to go back to heaven is, I am with you always. So by the way, if you're ever praying and you say, Jesus, please be with so-and-so today, or please be with me, you're kind of praying crosswise to scripture because Jesus already said, I will be with you. And if we say, be with us, it's like, hello, (laughs) I said, I am with you always. I am here, didn't leave, I'm still here. So if God calls us to do something, we can hang on to that promise that Jesus is with us. Several years ago, I came across a story of a rite of passage in the Cherokee Indian tribe that um, when, I, I think it was about when a boy turned 13 or so, his father would take him into the forest, blindfold him, and leave him alone. And in order to pass the test that would declare him to be a man, he would be required to sit on a stump all night long and not remove the blindfold until the morning sun shone through it. He wasn't allowed to cry out for help to anybody. If he survived the night, it was declared he was a man. He was not to tell the other boys of his experience because each youngster must come into manhood on his own and must experience this personally, alone. Obviously, a boy is terrified. Being in the dark and blindfolded, his mind plays tricks on him. As the wind blows the grass and the trees, he hears all kinds of noises. He thinks wild animals must surely just absolutely be surrounding him. But he has to sit still no matter what and never remove the blindfold. That's the only way he can become a man. Finally, after a fearful night, the sun appears and he can remove the blindfold. And then he discovers his father sitting right next to him. Without the boy knowing, His father has been there all night long protecting him from anything that might cause harm. That is our story. It doesn't matter if we can feel God there or not. He is with us always. I have a friend who really struggles with this. I have have received so many texts from her that says, I feel so alone. God has abandoned me. And I would tell her, Jesus promised that he would never leave you or forsake you, that he would be with you always. You may feel alone, but your feeler is broken. I'm sorry, but the reality is he is with you. Even if you can't feel it, he's still there. Well, then God gives Moses three signs to prove I am with you and I'm going to authenticate you as my ambassador, as my mediator, as my deliverer for my people. The first sign, um, God says to Moses, hey, what's that in your hand? And Moses looks and goes, it's a staff. God says, throw it on the ground. And when he does, it turns into a snake. And of course, Moses kind of runs away from it. And God says, nah, go back to the snake. Pick it up by the tail. And the moment he grabbed it by the tail, it turned back into a staff. There was a lesson here that as long as Moses continued to depend on the staff, which is what you would do with the staff. It's like my cane. <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I don't play baton with it. I don't poke people with it. I lean on it every step. And that's what Moses would do with his staff. Um, He would lean on it. And as long as he continued to depend on the staff and support himself by leaning on the staff, 
that was a signal, it was a, a, uh, an example of leaning on God. And as long as he depended on God, everything would be fine. But if he ever flew to the, uh, through the staff to the ground and said, I got this, I'm on my own, I can do, I got this, I can handle it, then he would find himself helpless before that old serpent, the devil. Not a good plan. There was a great practical lesson for Moses and for us that the secret to overcoming Satan lies in leaning on God, represented by the staff. We need to be aware we really are weak, we really are needy, we really are dependent, and we really need to lean on God. We need to lean on his power, as Moses would lean on the staff. The lesson from sign two is that our hearts are diseased. The second sign, God says to Moses, hey, put your hand in your bosom. Basically, there was folds. There were folds in his garment. And he said, I want you to put your hand close to your heart and pull it out. And when he pulled it out, his hand was leprous. Um, it, was, it must have been an incredibly disgusting thing. You know, what a shock to go from healthy hand to diseased hand. And then he says, do it again. And he put his hand back into his bosom near his heart. And when he pulled it out, it was restored. And God's message with that is we all need to face the ugly truth that our hearts are desperately and hopelessly diseased by sin. And we need a miracle to cleanse them. Just as Moses needed the miracle of Yahweh taking care of that diseased hand. As believers in New Testament times, um, the miracle that we get is Jesus' blood. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness and the ugliness and the disease of sin. So we need to, but first we need to admit that our hearts are, are diseased before we can experience the cleansing and the healing that comes from Jesus. The, there was a third sign. Uh, and the lesson from it is that there are terrible consequences for refusing to believe. The third sign is that God says, look, if they won't listen to you, if they won't believe you with the first two, resort to this third one. Take some Nile water, river, Nile river water, pour it on the ground, it's going to turn into blood. The source of life in Egypt, the Nile River, would immediately be transformed into death. That third sign was to be worked only if the testimony of the first two was refused. That sign tells the consequences of refusing to believe what the other signs so plainly gave witness to. If someone rejects the testimony of God's word that she is under the dominion of Satan, that she's a slave to Satan, that she is depraved by nature, that she's got a diseased heart and she desperately needs God. She desperately needs Jesus to be her savior. If someone rejects that and says, no, I am not going there, forget it. Nothing but divine judgment awaits someone who consistently says no to God. The water turning into blood speaks of life giving way to death. It anticipates the second death that awaits. On the other side of dying, the hell is eternal separation from God. And if somebody goes through life consistently saying no, 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 to every time God reaches out to them, their life will segue into death. 
And that's what the lesson from sign number three was. Another lesson is that God is in charge of our gifts and our imperfections. In Exodus 4.10, Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you've spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue, which a lot of people have suggested that maybe he, had, he was a stutterer or he had a speech impediment of some kind. And then at Exodus 4.11, the Lord said to him, Who made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? So if Moses says to God, Hey, I've got a speech impediment, God says, That's on me. I am the Lord God who determines how perfectly or imperfectly, what, what kind of body you're going to have. All the physical senses and the beauty and the design and the perfection of them are from the creator. But all the imperfections that happen in life in a fallen world are also from him. He's got a reason for every imperfection that we have. He's in control. He's got a purpose. He's got a plan. I have a precious friend who was born with a genetic anomaly and you look at her and you instantly know she's not like other people. She's, um, she's, has, she's not a dwarf. She's not a little person, but she's very much shorter than anybody that, that I know. Not everything in her body is proportional. Her, her head is larger than the rest of her body. Her hands are, are not quite the same size as other people's. It affected this genetic thing um, affected her hips so that she walks a little bit differently. And because she looks different and has since the moment she was born, she literally lived out every single school day of her life being bullied from the first day of kindergarten to the last graduation day of high school. Every single day she was bullied. And she has sustained so many soul wounds because of it. She has a deep desire to speak to the bullied and to tell them what she's learned about the goodness of God and that we can run to him and allow him to be our comforter. She also has a deep desire to love abandoned children and orphaned children. And she, she has this amazing ability then to have a testimony to those who aren't like others. And she was struggling one day we were talking and she was struggling with the way that her body looks because she's so different from everybody else. And the Lord whispered to me, Lisa is perfect for what I want her to do with her life because she has instant credibility for those that aren't like everybody else, for those who are other than, for those who are different, for those who've been abandoned in any way. All she has to do is show up and people instantly know that she has lived a very painful life. She is perfect for what I created her for. In her case, her imperfections that she has struggled with are absolutely perfect because our good, good God is able to cause wonderful things to come out of those things which cause us pain. Another lesson from from Exodus is that sometimes when things go from bad to worse, it means things are right on track. 
Moses and Aaron approached Pharaoh and they delivered God's command, let my people go. And and Pharaoh refused. Not only did he say, no, I'm not going to let them go, but he turned up the heat on the quota of bricks that they had to produce and they had to go get their own straw for it. That meant more pain and more unreasonableness and their horrible lives became even worse. But God was arranging the set. He's a set designer and he was arranging all the set decorations and the pieces and the furniture so that he would show up as the hero. It didn't mean he was losing control. It meant things were unfolding exactly the way he wanted them to because there are no accidents and a good and loving God is in control. About this this time, we read that Pharaoh's heart was hard and God hardened it further. And one of the lessons from Exodus is that hearts that God hardens are already hard to begin with. God says in Exodus 7.3, I will harden Pharaoh's heart that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. The whole purpose of hardening Pharaoh's heart was to glorify himself and to to blow people away with what God was going to do despite this hardened heart. So Pharaoh hardened his heart, and then God just cranked up the volume on that hard heart. When When I was thinking about this, I was reminded of something the Lord Jesus said, is that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Whatever is in the heart, that's what pops out of our mouths. And so we can't, when, when someone, you know, says things that, you know, oh, I really didn't mean that I'm not that kind of a terrible person. Like, um, if it came out of your heart, yeah, that's really saying something ugly about you. Well, when I went to Burundi several years ago, one of our um, translators grew up in Rwanda. And when we were over there, she said, Sue, we have an African proverb, always believe a drunk man. <laughs> because all of his filters are gone. And so whatever is in his heart is what comes out of his mouth. And I said, mm, that sounds like Jesus. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so that hardness that came out of Pharaoh was already there to begin with. In Exodus 7, 4, God says, when Pharaoh doesn't listen to you, I'm going to lay my hand on Egypt and I'm going to bring out my hosts, my people, the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt by great judgments. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. God says, I'm hardening Pharaoh's heart and I am going to show the Egyptians that I am the Lord and Pharaoh is not. So these verses supply us with one reason why the Lord hardened the hearts of Pharaoh and the Egyptians, in order that he might have full opportunity to display his amazing power. It was a dark, dark background, but the more contrast there is between dark and light, the more you see the light. That that hardened heart was about turning up the darkness so that God's light could shine even brighter. The next lesson from from Exodus is, please let the plagues give you the (laughs) heebie-jeebies. We don't want to skip over these. They were horrible. It was a horrible, horrible thing to live through. They were a succession of terrible judgments that descended on Pharaoh and upon his land, these plagues of Egypt. Just real quickly, let me run through them, especially for those of you who are new um, this semester. Welcome. 
let me just quickly run through the 10 plagues. First of all, the waters of the Nile were turned into blood. Then the frogs covered the land and entered the homes of the Egyptians. Um, And actually, the Israelites, they needed to know that God was sovereign too. And then there was lice, which was particularly disgusting to the Egyptians because one of their gods was cleanliness. I should say one of their idols was cleanliness. The, The priests would shave their bodies every third day because they wanted to make sure that they were completely clean. And so these lice are just, you know, if you've ever gotten the little note, you know, from school, (laughs) dear mom, guess what? Your child is in a class with lice. Happy delousing. It's a disgusting thing. And they, they hated the lice. Then there were swarms of flies that invaded the house of the Egyptians and covered the ground. Then a grievous disease wiped out the livestock. And then there were disgusting boils and sores on both people and their beasts. There was thunder and hail. Then there was this horrible plague of locusts that consumed all their vegetation, um, whatever the thunder and hail hadn't, whatever the hail hadn't gotten. Um, The ninth plague was a thick darkness that was so strong it could be felt that overspread the land for three days, but there was light in Goshen where God's people lived. So there was this huge contrast there. And then the 10th plague was that the firstborn of man and animal were killed. That's a lot of power being released. That's a lot of judgment in one country. Psalm 78 has a frightful summary of what happened with the plagues. God sent upon them his burning anger, fury and indignation and trouble, a band of destroying angels. He leveled a path for his anger. He did not spare their soul from death, but gave over their life to the plague and smote all the firstborn of Egypt, the first issue of their virility in the tents of Ham. It was a bad, bad time. Praise God that we are not experiencing those those plagues because we are protected by Jesus, but it was a bad time to be in Egypt. The next lesson is that sin requires death, but God provides a substitute. And Exodus 11.5, God said, All the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstones, all the firstborn of the cattle as well. The Israelites and the Egyptians were both under the sentence of death. Every single place in Egypt was going to be visited by the angel of death, and the firstborn was going to die. But God provided a substitute for his people who would believe him and obey what he told them to do. It was the blood of the lamb that covered the sin of whoever smeared it on the doorposts and the lintels of their homes. This is a picture of Jesus Christ, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. One of the clearest connections between the Old Testament and Exodus and the New Testament is where Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. The Passover lamb is one of the clearest pictures of the Lord Jesus who would come later that's in the Bible. Another lesson from Exodus is that God was looking for the blood of the lamb, and he still is. God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. 
God's eye was not on the house. He was looking for the blood on the doorposts and the lintels. The houses may have been huge and strong and beautiful. That made no difference. If there was no blood at those doorways, the angel of death took out the firstborn in that house. Or the house might be a miserable hovel. It may be falling to pieces with age and decay, but it doesn't matter. If the blood was on the doorpost and the lintel, those within it were perfectly safe. God wasn't looking at the house. He was looking at the blood. And God wasn't looking at the people in the house either. He was looking for the blood. So people could be descendants of Abraham. They could have been circumcised on the eighth day. Outwardly, they could have been walking blamelessly so far as the law is concerned. But if there was no blood on the doorposts, somebody was going to die in that house. It was their personal application of the shed blood and that alone that protected people. And we are called today to personally appropriate the shed blood of Jesus to us. Another lesson, when we're afraid, we need to focus on God. Exodus 14.10 said, As Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. After they left Egypt, they're, they're bearing down on the Red Sea, and here come the Egyptians after them. And they were terrified. Why? Because they were looking at the Egyptians rather than looking at God. The cure for fear is to keep our focus on the Lord. To be occupied with our circumstances and our surroundings is fatal to our peace. It's just going to be like Peter, who got to walk on water as long as he was focused on Jesus. And then he noticed, oh, there's wind. Oh, there's waves. Oh, I'm wet. And he started to sink like a rock because he took his eyes off of Jesus. And the same thing happens when we're sinking, when we're afraid. The Lord says, look at me. Look at me. That's always the antidote to fear, is to look at God, look at Jesus. One of my favorite aspects of of Exodus in terms of the lessons from this book is that if it looks like God has abandoned you, look again. (laughs) On the shores of the Red Sea, it sure looked like Yahweh had abandoned his people. It looked like they were either going to be slaughtered or taken back into slavery because here come the Egyptian um, army right after them. They're breathing down their necks. But appearances are very deceptive. God turned things around so quickly. We have to remember that appearances are deceptive and things are not always how they seem. I came across a story years ago. I love the story. Don't try to parse the theology of this. Just kind of listen to the point. Two traveling angels stopped to spend the night in the home of a wealthy family. The family was rude and refused to let the angels stay in the mansion's guest room. Instead, the angels were given a space in the cold basement. As they made their bed on the hard floor, the older angel saw a hole in the wall and he repaired it. When the younger angel asked why, the older angel replied, things aren't always what they seem. The next night, the pair came to rest at the house of a very poor but very hospitable farmer and his wife. After sharing what little food they had, the couple let the angels sleep in their bed where they could have a good night's rest. 
When the sun came up the next morning, the angels found the farmer and his wife in tears. Their only cow, whose milk had been their sole income, lay dead in the field. The younger angel was infuriated and asked the older angel, how could you let this happen? The first man had everything, yet you helped him. The second family had little, but and they were willing to share everything, and you let their cow die. Things aren't always what they seem, the older angel replied. When we stayed in the basement of the mansion, I noticed there was gold stored in the hole of that wall. Since the owner was so obsessed with greed and unwilling to share his good fortune, I sealed the wall so he couldn't find it. Then last night, as we slept in the farmer's bed, the angel of death came for his wife. I told him to take the cow instead. Things are not always as they seem. Now, you see what I mean? Don't parse the theology. It's terrible theology, but I love the story that things are not always what they seem. And that's one of the things that I constantly try to remember my, to remind myself that all the available facts are not all the facts. We never see the whole picture. God was right there with his people, with the Egyptians breathing down their necks, like, we're going to die. And God's like, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I haven't even begun to show up and show off yet. Things are not always as they seem. Keep our eyes focused on the Lord and trust him. Another lesson is that the wilderness is not home and it's not fun. It's the lifeless, barren place we journey through on our way to home, which is heaven with Jesus. The, the people of Israel experience three days and no water. Sometimes God lets us be thirsty so that we'll turn to him as the source of living water. He deliberately gives us needs and strong desires so that he can meet those needs. Then they get to a place where there's water at Mara, and they discover that the water is bitter. And that's a lesson that the joys and pleasures of the world will not satisfy because we've been given a new life in Christ that has nothing in common with the world. When we expect a smooth and easy path, we, we are expecting God to be nice and kind and let life be smooth for us. Um, and then we equate our expectations of what God should do with his goodness and when God doesn't measure up to our expectations, we go, he's not good. Because we think his expe our expectations of what God should do is the display of his goodness or not. And so when we start getting mad at God because I was expecting you to do this, I asked and, and I claimed it and you didn't come through, you're obviously not good. God says, this is about your expectations. It's not about what I actually promised. Scripture says, that there are pleasures forevermore found at God's right hand, not in the wilderness, not on earth. The wilderness is not home, and it's not fun. Grumbling and murmuring. Uh, does anybody have any experience with that? Um, grumbling and murmuring come from taking our eyes off of God. They, the people grumbled at Moses. What are we going to drink? They were focused on their need and they were forgetting that the pillar of cloud had led them to the very spot where they were thirsty and only found bitter water. They murmured and grumbled because they took their eyes off of God. 
Murmuring and grumbling comes from unbelief and rebellion and pride. It means believing, I deserve better than this, and God is holding out on me. That's the source of grumbling and murmuring. And so when we find ourselves doing that, we need to look at the Lord again. Jesus said that the manna that God gave his people for providing for their um, hunger pointed to him as the true bread of heaven. In John 6.32, he said, I say to you, it's not Moses who's given you the bread out of heaven. It's my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus said, that manna in the Old Testament that y'all are familiar with, yeah, that was about me. The manna came down from heaven, just as Jesus left heaven to come to earth. The manna came down from heaven into the wilderness, just as Jesus left heaven to come to the wilderness of earth, the spiritual wilderness of earth. The manna was a free gift from God, just as Jesus is the free gift of God the Father to us. The manna was sent to a needy and foodless people, just as Jesus was sent to people who had absolutely no resources on their own to save ourselves. We, all people, are destined to perish without a miracle, just as God provided manna as a miracle so that they wouldn't die. The manna came right to where the Israelites were. They didn't have to leave the the wilderness to go get it. It came, all they just needed to go was outside their tents. But then something had to be done with it. Either you gather it up and take it in and eat it, or you trample it underfoot. And we do the same with Jesus. The manna needed to be personally gathered and personally eaten. And each of us must personally trust in Christ, not depend on being baptized in a church when we were small or having godly parents or grandparents or having a confirmation certificate with our name on it. Each of us must personally put our trust in Christ, just as those who are in the Old Testament needed to personally eat the manna in order to be sustained all those years. The manna met a daily need. Yesterday's manna was not going to nourish today's need for energy, and we need to connect daily with Jesus. That's how we have a relationship with the bread of life. It was interesting, small detail, but the manna was white. That's the color of purity. Jesus was 100% pure and sinless. He was absolutely white, spiritually speaking. The manna was sweet, like wafers of honey, and Jesus is sweetness to our soul. The manna was ground in a mill or beaten in a mortar and pestle, and it was, he was baked in a hot oven, and it was baked in a hot oven in pans. And that points to how Jesus was suffering every day of his life, having left heaven and living on earth, because he was the bread of life for us, and he was beaten and bruised for our sins. And finally, the manna was given in the night. And then when they would wake up in the morning, it would be there. That's a picture of our helplessness. Nighttime means you're, you're, you don't have any resources on your own because it's night. And Jesus was sent to us in our helplessness. Um, get, coming close to clo- landing this plane, spiritual warfare is hard work, and we get weary, and we shouldn't go it alone. There was a time when the Amalekites attacked the Israelites, and the way that they handled it was a very interesting spiritual thing. uh, Joshua led 
some of the, the men out there to fight the Amalekites. And Moses goes up with his staff. And he, as long as he's holding the staff up, the Israelites would win the battle. And as soon as he got tired and he lowered it, then they would lose. And so his friends, Aaron and Hur, went and got a stone for him to sit on because it was tiring. And then they got to the point where they held his hands up when the skirmish raged on below. The lesson here is that we need friends and companions to hold us up. But also there's something else going on with this picture in the spiritual realm. Um, Aaron and her are a picture of Jesus and the Holy Spirit who support us when we're doing spiritual battle. Aaron was the head of Israel's priesthood, or he would, was going to become the, the, the head of Israel's priesthood. And so he's like our high priest, Jesus. And her means light which is an indication that this is like the Holy Spirit. So there's Jesus and the Holy Spirit going, I gotcha, I'm gonna help you with your spiritual battles. We will support you. We are here for you. I will not leave you or forsake you. My big three takeaway lessons from Exodus, um, and I, I hope that you enjoyed the questions in your Bible study in terms of looking back over the first semester. Um, these, were, these were my big three takeaways from Exodus, that first of all, a good and loving God is always in control. Secondly, God always keeps his promises, even the teeny tiny ones. And third, we can see signposts pointing to Jesus on every page of Exodus. We'll develop that more as this semester develops later. Let me pray. Father, I just thank you so much for this time that we've had in your house, um, worshiping you through studying your word. Thank you for the, um, the teachers and the writers and the commentators and the people that have struggled with your word to make it clear to the rest of us. Thank you that there are so many life lessons to take away from Exodus. And Lord, I just pray that you would imprint the ones you especially want each of us to take away on our hearts. And I pray that you would give us someone to share that with before the end of the day. What is it that we heard from you today? What, where did we feel that gentle pressure on our hearts where you say, that, that place right there, that's what I want to deal with? Or where we felt your nudge bringing us to a new understanding or a new behavior or a, something to, to repent of or give up. Lord, show us clearly what, what it is that you want us to do differently because we've been in your word. We've been looking at Exodus today. I thank you for this time we've had together. I thank you for the, the sweetness of small group time. And Lord, I just pray that everybody would have a blast in their small group as we go there now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Sue. So you are dismissed to go to your small groups. If